Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 22 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, Disasters and Local Governments. I'm joined today by Dr. Miriam Porter from the Urban and Regional Studies Institute at Minnesota State University, Mankato. You may recognize her from episode 21 when she got to moderate a discussion. Dr. Porter has served as the chair of the Urban and Regional Studies Institute, the internship coordinator, and the director of graduate studies. She teaches the graduate capstone course studio and other courses in the graduate curriculum and undergraduate curriculum. She teaches courses courses such as organizational environment, administrative services and management process. Dr. Porter has also been a local government manager for three different cities in the Twin Cities suburbs. She did some interesting research last year that we're gonna build upon. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Porter. So what got you interested in disasters and local government? Well, thanks a lot, Pat. And I'm really um, anxious and happy to have this conversation with you because I know this is also an area of your interest as far as disaster management. I um, got interested in disaster research uh, from an experience I had when I was in West Africa in Ghana. Uh, So the answer takes us back to West Africa to 2014. And I was there for a field studies with a group of students from Minnesota State University. And we were on a site where there had been a flash flood And in a matter of minutes, 241 people had lost their lives just in less than five minutes. They were washed away. Their lives were washed away. Those that remained and that were still on the location had lost everything. They were trying to build back their businesses. Um, They had lost their personal belongings. And uh, it struck me that they had really nowhere to turn to recover from the disasters. So it was something I wanted to know more about. And I returned in 2016 and I started uh, research with a colleague, Dr. Um, Raymond Osamani-Botang. And we um, began our research in disaster management. So today, though, I want to focus more on my recent uh, research, which is in Nepal. And I did another case study uh, in Nepal in 2020, just this a year ago, February. And uh, Nepal is such a beautiful country. It's uh, the the backdrop is the Himalayan mountains. And uh, it has the most gracious people, some of the most gracious people I've met on the face of the earth. So I was very, you know, happy to be in such a setting. But um, what I was looking at was their uh, post-earthquake recovery from 2015, when they had quite a devastating earthquake. About 180 people uh, died during that earthquake um, of 2015. And my research strategy in both of the case studies has been to go in after the dust has settled, so to speak. 
So they've had time to return to some semblance of normal and they can look and they can um, reflect more on what went right, what went wrong, how they would have done it differently. And so I go in and I try to gather that data, then that information from, from the institutional perspective, and then hopefully the perspective from the people on the ground that were directly impacted. So it sounds to me you are doing what we call the after action report here in the United States as you go in and gather what people did and what they learned from it and what you can take away from it. That's kind of what it sounds like you were doing. That's exactly it. That is exactly what I was doing. Good. Well, did you have a partner in Nepal that helped you with the research or did you go there by yourself? Well, I was very fortunate to be joined when I got to Nepal by a former graduate student of Minnesota State University, Situ Sheetrocker. And Situ um, did a master's degree with us in urban planning. And while she was a student, I came to know of her interest in disaster management and preparedness. Um, as a matter of fact, she had been in the recovery efforts of the very earthquake that we went to study five years after the fact. And so she was able to open all kinds of doors because during her work on recovery, she met all of the organizational uh, people, um, administrators, and she was able to make those connections for us when we came to um, Nepal to do our research. And she's from, of course, she's from Nepal. And so uh, she'd been back at home and then I joined her this time. So that was uh, my partner and I was so fortunate to, to have her. And she was able to get um, an audience for us with 16 different organizations. And I can give you, uh, you know, some of the organizations to tell you a little bit about the people we talked to, the organizational representatives we talked to. Um, the National Society of Earthquake Technology was one of them. And their job is to organize approaches to manage and minimize earthquake risk. So they were an important body. Um, we talked to the Environmental and Public Health Organization and they disseminate appropriate technologies to help people in their environment. We talked to the Social Institute of Social and Environmental Transition, which uh, they look at how they can deal with uh, climate change and a changing social uh, environment. We talked to representatives from Oxfam and um, their uh, focus was on uh, human rights, going in uh, and focusing on human rights. We talked to the Red Cross, the Nepal Red Cross. We talked to um, <clears throat> the Habitat of Humanity, which was um, has a chapter in Nepal. Uh, we talked to business people. Uh, we talked to municipality representatives. We talked to a university department director. Um, and different students, and um, well, uh, a hospital administrator also. So we really did a cross-section of everybody that might and was involved in disaster preparedness and recovery. 
Well, that was very interesting. I didn't know Habitat for Humanity had a, uh, a chapter there. So I just want to ask a question about that National Society of Earthquake Management. Is that specifically a society within Nepal or is it outside of Nepal too? It is. As far as I know, it is a Nepal organization. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of it being international. Okay, interesting. Uh, so, yes, yes. Yeah. So they are really working on, you know, developing a, a institutional framework to, to address disasters. And they're seeing more frequent disasters and more intense disasters, just as the whole world is at this point. Right. So you were talking to a variety of organizations and a variety of people. So what did you find out when you were talking to them? Well, to, to get the information we were looking for, the best practices, um, we had developed a questionnaire. And this was a tested questionnaire for validity and reliability. And um, that was kind of the uh, framework for our conversation. And the questionnaire was in three parts. The first dealt with what are the prevalent disasters? Now in um, Nepal, the prevalent disaster is earthquakes. They are right on a fault line in Nepal. And so it's not a matter of, will there be another another earthquake? It'll be, when will the next earthquake occur? So being prepared is very important in Nepal. Um, in Ghana, it was um, flooding, flash floods because of the intensity of the rainfall. It's a tropical area. And um, so the, the top uh, disasters kind of surface during, during that question when they're asked to identify the uh, prevalent disasters. The second deals with preparedness. How prepared do they feel they are to face the next disaster? And they base that on what happened previously. And you the give third, them a definite, oh, I'm sorry. Did you give them a definition of preparedness or did you let them interpret that on their own? I let them kind of take that and decide because given the different perspectives of the organizations from a hospital, a municipality, a policy agency, they looked at preparedness a little bit differently. But the goal is, the goal is, which was the next area of the question yes. was, what was the response? How did they respond? And then that led to the answer to your question, the best practices. Mm -hmm. And um, what were those best practices that, um, that were identified during the, um, the interview? So, so, so you did a questionnaire. Did you talk to just individuals at one time or were there groups of people or a combination of that? combination. Sometimes it was like a team of the organization might have had three or four people. Sometimes it was just one person. And then when we were at the businesses, it was kind of with the manager was there, the owner was there. And um, with the municipalities, it was the person who most directly worked with the um, disaster management. All right, so you got to interview a bunch of people. So what kind of common themes came out or interesting things came from your discussions with them? Well, it was, um, we put it together through a qualitative um, process. And so we tried to identify threads from every um, conversation we had with the different organizations. And that took us 
to some um, different um, best practices. And the first one, the first thread that connected for us dealt with education. And uh, the feeling was, as far as education for people, was that you put your greatest emphasis on school children. Because in that culture, it's the school children that go home and tell their families about what they learned in school and about what they should be doing. And so um, that has been pretty effective in providing the information directly in the schools. Now, it's so important, though, to make sure that the kids have a good understanding. And they gave uh, a story. I heard this from a few different uh, organizations. It was really a tragedy. Um, the kids had learned, first of all, when there's a, a hurricane or hurricane, <laughs> when there is a, um, a, a disaster, a, um, earthquake at hand, that they duck, cover, and hold on. Oh. So wherever they're at, they duck, they cover themselves, and they hold on to whatever is you know stationary. Now, an earthquake struck. And the kids were outside playing, which actually is a very good place to be to, uh -huh. in an open area. Things aren't going to fall on you. However, they remembered their training to duck, cover, and hold on. And they ran back into school and they lost their lives. Oh, no. So they learned to distinguish between, you know, outside, inside. That was part of the education that the kids had. Huh. Um, the next thing that came up were, um, as far as best practices, were construction methods. And looking at a combination of traditional construction and modern construction techniques. And with that, um, the trend has been to go more into concrete, which has the least give. Mm -hmm. So the traditional uh, materials had a lot more flexibility with, uh, for use in construction. And it is a matter of looking at a combination of the trad traditional methods and trying to put those together with the modern techniques to build the most um, earthquake ready buildings. And that so, makes a big difference. So did cost in construction come up at all about that best practices or is it just more about the just using the right materials type of thing? It was more about using the right materials, um, but um, the the cost factor is an issue because of the growth and the need to get buildings up readily. So they use the cheapest, quickest ways to build, which are usually not the most uh, reliable ways that are going to keep people's buildings from collapsing on them. So um, there's that pull push and pull from right. hurry up and get it done to make it earthquake safe. But that is foremost on their minds. Mm -hmm. Another um, best practice was the need to create continuous awareness. Like anything, you know, when something passes, we forget, you know, our attention wanes as, as time goes on. And, you know, we can think in this country, April's coming up and it's earthquake awareness, or it's tornado awareness. And the tornado awareness, we have education, we have practice drills. Um, that kind of thing would be helpful in the developing world as well to try to create an ongoing awareness of the techniques that are going to be the safe, 
place people in the safest place. Right. So the another um, best practice that surfaced was streamlined response. Now, as I said earlier, you know, about the different organizations that are involved, we have national governments, we have uh, local governments, we have different agencies involved to make sure that there's some cohesive response and um, the idea is to have more standardized plans and policies and um, have the national level recognize that it's the local communities that are the first responders and they need to have the freedom for the, the swift and efficient response to disasters. So that's an ongoing coordination that they're working on uh, continually because um, every agency, every uh, organization has their own ways of approaching the disaster, but to make sure that there's some standardized um, policies and practices so that when the time comes, things move swiftly and, and efficiently. Well, and that's important, not only in the developing world, but the developed world as well. And we'll talk about that difference in just a minute, is that it is the locals that re initially respond. If you're going to wait for a national or a federal response, that's that's multiple days out. You have to start right away. So that is so true, Pam. Yeah. That is absolutely true. So having a national kind of standard so people would understand if we have an earthquake, everybody should respond at least similarly makes a lot of sense, especially if you're bringing in responders from outside of the area. So and who's in command on the scene? You mm -hmm. know, is it a local official? Should it be a local official? And should everyone else bring their resources to that person mm -hmm. uh, to be um, disseminated? The next area is um, preparation. And with preparation, we're really looking at um, uh, identifying community members who can take action and um, then looking at how the community is um, uh, executing its zoning plans, for instance. Uh, zoning becomes a you know, a huge issue in all of this. And uh, I'm going to go back to the Ghana case study for a minute because it became very problematic to zone in areas that weren't, for instance, in the flood district because the city doesn't have the discretion to um, sell property or to oversee the, the exchange of property rights. That's done in the tribal council. The tribes allocate the property. And if you're given property from the chief in the tribe, then you're going to build on it regardless if it's zoned floodplain or not. So trying to get those conflicts together, but the zoning becomes very important. Where to stay out of, that's, that is important. Was there anything specific in zoning in Nepal that you saw? As far as uh, the, yes, the fault lines and trying to stay oh. a distance from the fault lines, that is an important aspect. And there's a lot of infringement upon the fault lines and they've done a better job of identifying where those lines, where the worst earthquake is going to be. Okay. But um, uh, still it's an ongoing vigilance to, yeah. to try to move people out of those zones, out of those districts. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I hear you have a commentator in the background giving its two cents on disasters here too. <laughs> 
that's what we're real people doing them from home. So, okay, so we've got zoning. Anything else that came out of the conversation? There's two more things. One is accountability, uh-huh. and uh, with accountability, uh, it was making sure the government is using the money uh, responsibly and appropriately. Um, because uh, the developing world does receive funds from, you know, international organizations to help with their problems. And there's always a potential for corruption. And so it's a matter of making sure that the money is being expended as it was intended to be. So accountability is a big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, In Nepal, particularly, the last finding dealt with um, the culture. And the culture is such that it is a service and, uh, and it's of service and very generous to help each other in the time of need. Um, probably the most so, more so than I've ever seen anywhere in the world, how they look at things. Um, I was talking to somebody out in the epicenter of where the earthquake had occurred. He was a businessman and also known as a wise man in the area. (laughs) And uh, he said that after the disaster, uh, people came by with bedding and some rice and uh, his family had gathered and he felt they had enough. And he said, we have plenty, but the people over there don't seem to have what they need. So give them ours which is, you know, uncharacteristic in this day and age when people, uh, you know, we look at pandemic here and people hoarding different things. Um, You know, that was the, that's part of their culture was to be of service to each other and giving. And that is also, I think, a very, very good practice, maybe the best practice, um, because uh, it probably is our neighbors that are the first ones to really see what the, the impact has been on us. Absolutely. So those, those are, were the findings, Pat. And, you know, you'd mentioned why the developing world, you know, and why is that so uh, important to look at separately from other parts, you know, other, the yeah. developed world. And the reason is they don't have the resources by any means that we have in the developed world. They don't have insurance. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the infrastructure. Um, they don't have funding. Those kind of things that we have that sometimes aren't even enough when we have almost everything we need, um, they have none of that. And so it's important to look at with that lacking, with some of that core uh, those core um, things needed lacking, what can we do? And that's why we look at best practices outside of those um, specific uh, resources. And the other piece, when we think about the developing world, 83% of the world's population is in the developing world. Mm -hmm. You know, those of us that are in the developed world are a small percentage of the people that exist in the world. So these are the needs of most of us in the world and to focus on the needs of most of us in the world has become, you know, to me, very important. Right. 
Well, and it's not like, you know, we, we talk about when we have a disaster here in the United States and people don't have clean drinking water, we just ship in semis of bottled waters to them, where in other areas of the world, you don't have that capability and you have to still figure out ways to get people clean drinking water that might be a little more um, innovative or make more use of the tools that they have available. So it just makes so much sense. And disasters don't care. They don't care if they're in the developed world or not, or in the developing world. So we have to prepare for all of that. It's very interesting. What we do know about the disasters is that they are occurring more frequently and more with more intensity. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is very much part of um, climate change. And most of the developing world is acknowledging that as being a major issue in the um, in disasters so well then if you add man-made disasters on top of it it just complicates things too so so how did nepal recover from it was a very devastating earthquake in 2015 and impacted a lot of people what what kind of recovery steps did they take are they still in recovery what's going on there we are really five years later you could still see damage that had been done but they have done a great deal of recovery um businesses were working most people had had um homes again uh the loss of life life is lost of course but um a lot of uh a lot of um progress is being made and i was in some of the historic districts and there's some amazing history in that country and uh, those were probably the hardest to come back because they're trying to reconstruct um, the architecture that existed thousands of years ago mm-hmm. and to try to make it as authentic as possible. So um, that remains an ongoing process in Nepal. And that might be decades down the line before that full recovery ever, t- ever takes place. Yeah, and there might be some that doesn't recover too because you can only reconstruct so much. So, all right. So I'm going to ask you to do a little comparison then because you've been in Ghana and you've been in Nepal and had seen significant disasters in both there. Um, what are some ways, oh, I'm sorry, let me try that again. What are some steps that they took during, for recovery from their disasters that we could use here in the United States or maybe don't even think about? Well, I think the um, idea about uh, looking to each other for support, you know, and, um, you know, with a generous heart, I think that is what we could very well learn from. And um, I think that uh, so many things as far as processes for response, as far as um, uh, equipment, um, we are in, you know, such a good, a good position if we use it correctly. And, and that's a key, you know, you look at what happened with Katrina uh, and why that was such a terrible failure when we had everything, but we hadn't been adhering to our own policies. I mean, um, we had uh, the, I believe it was the Iraq war going on at that point, yep. And we had high water equipment that had been shipped out to the desert in of Iraq for some reason. So we didn't have the response equipment. I think uh, in um, uh, Louisiana, that one in three National Guard had been called out to uh, Iraq 
and they weren't available then to respond to the national disasters. So our own policies weren't being followed. You know, we had them in place, but do we do, do we follow through on our own policies? Um, other things that, um, you know, they are trying to do that we could do better as well is um, streamlining, you know, uh, response, making sure all agencies are on board. Uh, I think we do a fairly good job of that, but there's always room for Im improvement. Um, but we just have such an advantage over um, the developing world, you know, like creating the awareness. We have the, the sirens and things like that. That's not available in most parts of the developing world. Uh, so we don't have those alert systems. And um, that puts it more, the honors more and more on the um, communities themselves and the people within the communities to work together, to be aware, to watch the signs and to react appropriately. So well, my it, hope, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, and it also sounds like in those communities, they have more community resilience, you know, let's get together, let's work together, let's help each other out to recover from a disaster instead of relying on an outside agency to do that. So I think that's a great idea. You know, the generous heart and community resilience goes together very well. They really don't have a place to fall. They have to pick themselves up and, and move forward. And, you know, their governments try their best and the organizations that come in are trying their best, but it, um, it, they're a long way from really feeling the need that exists after a disaster. And the prevention of the loss of life, you know, that should be first and foremost as we look at the preparation. Um, so... Um, you know, I look to the future as far as, um, you know, research in this area. Now, one thing I was able to do with Ghana was go a second time and talk to the, um, the people, the, the community members themselves, mm -hmm. and the people who had experienced a disaster firsthand, had lost the business, maybe lost a relative, had lost, you know, their belongings, and um, find out from them um, how they managed to survive it. And um, I hadn't been able to do that so much in Nepal. The focus was on the institutions. So that would be an opportunity for further research is to go back and talk to the, the residents themselves mm -hmm. about um, their experience and what they did right and what didn't go well and what they would have done differently. You know, that hindsight is so important, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, that's how we learn and that's how we try to do things better. So interesting. Well, so I'm going to close with what was your personal, what did you get personally out of going to Nepal for research? I know you got a lot of great data, a lot of great interviews, but did you bring anything back personally? Well, I, you know, again, I'd go back, Pat, to the generous nature of the people. I mean, it really was, um, a culture that embraced each other and uh, how they greet each other with namaste and they put their heads to hands together and bow and uh, you know they're just a very very gentle society and uh, they pride themselves in being of service to others and that is something that you know I think I took back 
the most with me was that how important that is when it, everything is said and done, how important that is. Mm-hmm. It is. It's very important. Well, thank you, Dr. Porter. I've, I've loved this conversation. I have an emergency management background. I've been in some disasters, but after hearing what they've done in Nepal to recover and Ghana, it, it makes me take a step back and realize that it's a little easier when you have more tools available, but it doesn't always make it smoother. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Pat, for being part of this conversation. It was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash letstalkgov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode, and thank you for listening.